Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Play ball! It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everyone. Happy New Year to you all. As the Counting Crows once sang, maybe this year will be better than the last. Here's the first of what I hope are more interesting conversations and topics on this podcast. It's a chat with former big league pitcher Bill Pulsifer, whose career has a lot of relevance to the direction starting pitching has taken in today's game. 25 years ago, as we were getting ready for spring training 1996, both the Yankees and Mets had seeds of optimism. The Yankees had just been to the playoffs for the first time in over a decade, and they would begin the season with their new manager, Joe Torre, and their new shortstop, Derek Jeter. We kind of know what happened to them as they went along. The Mets were coming off a decent finish in 1995, but the excitement for them centered on three young pitching prospects who we were all certain would be cornerstones of a dynasty. In 1995, Bill Pulsifer and Jason Isringhausen rose to the majors with some success and promise, and they were soon to be joined by Paul Wilson, who was chosen by the Mets with the first overall pick out of Florida State in the 1994 draft. The group was marketed as Generation K, a hard-throwing group of young pitchers that was generating buzz not just in New York, but nationally as well. The late 60s and 70s were about Seaver, Kuzman, and Matlack. The 80s were about Gooden, Darling, Fernandez, and the 90s and beyond would surely be about Pulsifer, Wilson, and Isringhausen. But it never happened the way it was supposed to. They all had flashes of brilliance, and Isringhausen went on to have an outstanding career as a closer in later years. But injuries derailed this trio before it ever made its mark. Pulsifer was the first to go down in the spring of 96. He underwent Tommy John, didn't throw a pitch all season. The others would follow in due time. The trio never appeared in the same rotation even once, not a single turn. Injuries happen, of course, but in the cases of Pulsifer, Wilson, and Isringhausen, the staggering number of innings they threw in the minors might be seen as a contributing factor. I say staggering because the care given to modern pitching prospects, the careful monitoring of their innings is well documented. But a quarter century ago, the idea was still to build up starting pitchers with minor league innings, and the Mets did that with all three pitchers. It was nothing out of the ordinary then, but it seems insane when viewed with today's perspective. Both Pulsifer and Isringhausen averaged over 200 innings per season in 1994-95, and those are seasons in which most major league pitchers didn't reach those numbers because of strike-shortened seasons. And Paul Wilson, in his first full minor league season, 95 through 186 innings. Did all three pitchers break down because innings limits and pitch counts the way we know them now weren't a thing back then? It's impossible to say for sure, but you could make that case. And high hopes the Mets had in those three prospects crashed in a hurry. Pretty soon, throughout baseball, there were pitch counts. There were innings limits. In the case of a Yankees prospect a decade later, there were the famous jobber rules. All of that, you might say, could be traced 
to the disastrous results the Mets had with their prize prospects that entered 1996 with so much to dream on. Pulsifer never became a star, but he kept pitching. He made his last major league appearance in 2005 and pitched another six years in independent leagues, including with the Long Island Ducks. Pulsifer still makes his home on Long Island, and that's where I caught up with him in late December. Here is my conversation with Bill Pulsifer. Every time I get into discussions now or hear discussions about pitch counts, innings limits, uh, it didn't used to be this way, I always kind of think back to you because... I always feel like you and the guys you came in with were kind of the tipping point for why pitch counts and innings limits are needed today, and they become such a big part of today's game. Do you feel that way? Do you feel like yeah. your career Thank kind you. of started the shift? Yeah, I, I definitely have thought that for, for a long time. You know, I look back to a couple of things that um, that I did that I don't think will ever happen again. Um one is throwing 200 innings in a minor league season. Uh, I don't think that'll ever happen again. And um, also my first start in the major leagues, I threw 135 pitches. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't think those things are ever going to happen again. Yeah, I think, you know, what happened with us definitely made things uh, a little bit different in the game. But, you know, when we were coming through, there was that thing that was that the pitchers need to have 500 innings. It's kind of like the thing with the at-bats for the hitters mm-hmm. and the innings for the pitchers. So. At the time, the Mets were kind of, you know, a struggling, struggling ball club, and uh, they were looking for some some positivity and some hope, and uh, they wanted to get those 500 innings done, maybe just to feel like, you know, the guys were, were according to their their unwritten rules, they were major league ready, you know, major league ready to come up and, and be ready to to play. At the time, you didn't think anything unusual of it, right? I mean, I feel like you guys are all competitors, and you kind of work under the you know, whatever parameters you're working in at the time, it didn't seem like it was that unusual. You pitched until you were told not to. Yeah, we definitely wore it as a, a badge of honor to, to get past the seventh into the eighth and ninth innings. Uh, that was, you know, you only get to play once every five days as a starting pitcher. So you want to get the absolute must, most out of it that you possibly can. So uh, I wouldn't have had it any, any different at the time. Um, you know, maybe things looking back could have been done a little bit, bit differently, but I definitely think that the game kind of evolved due to uh, uh, my elbow and Jason uh, Jason Isringhausen's elbow and Paul Wilson's elbow, and just. Uh, but it doesn't seem to matter anyway because the guys are, you know, the, the the rate of Tommy John nowadays is just so high, and so it's just for me, it's like it seems like the inevitable. If you throw, you're gonna you're gonna hurt at some point in time, and uh, with the science the way it is, they'll they'll fix you and hopefully get you back out there. You you hit on a couple of the numbers that, that I wanted to get to, and obviously they stand out in your mind. Uh, in 1994, you're 20 years old. In your double-A season, you threw 201 innings, including five complete games. And then two complete games in the playoffs. <laughs> okay, Not that didn't count in the total. And then the next year, between AAA and the majors, you threw 218 innings. I mean, yeah. it just seems like this was built for disaster. Did anybody think that at the time? No, absolutely not. It was never even talked about. Anything that was, like I said, the only thing I really remember being talked about was getting those 500 innings in the minor leagues done before you were deemed major league ready by the old school standards. So, um, and that's the thing about when you're, you know, when you're a top prospect and that is succeeding, because obviously there's plenty of top prospects that don't do well off the bat, but we were doing so well that a bad outing was still seven innings, three or four runs, and you threw 115 to 120 pitches. You really didn't ever have those outings where you got knocked out in the first or second or third inning. 
and and only threw 50 or 60 or 70 pitches uh, on that given week. So I didn't think anything different of it. I, I just felt like this is what the, what you were supposed to do. You're supposed to go out there and, and take the ball, and that's my ball. And uh, hopefully I only have to hand it off for a few outs, if, if any outs at, at all, just to – to, to do what your job was, which was to give the, the team a chance to win and, and keep your team in the ballgame. I had a vague recollection of your big league debut. I was there. I remember being in the group in the clubhouse at Shea Stadium after the game talking to you. Uh, but then I looked up the details, and it it boggles my mind today, <laughs> 25 years later. You went seven innings, but you gave up five runs in the first inning. Incredible. And you still managed to go seven. You allowed nine hits seven runs, walk six, struck out three. And as you mentioned, the, the pitch count in the box score says 131 pitches. In a big league debut, I mean, I, I would think multiple people would be fired if that happened today. Uh, yeah, I don't even think they would even get to that that point to where there would def- definitely be a phone call made and, hey, this guy's out of the game, get him out of the game. And it would be talked about before the game, I would suspect, too. You know, we're not going to let that happen. I mean, from I, I've been out of the game for a while now, but I, I have – I know people that are involved and, and some young, some of the younger kids uh, that are around here that uh, are playing in, in um, organized ball in the minor leagues. And it seems like they get around a hundred innings um, in the minor leagues and they're starting to think about shutting them down or resting them. So <clears throat> I think there's a fine line, you know, between getting out there and pitching and learning how to pitch, which I think is different nowadays because of the velocity. It's not as much pitching as it used to be. It's more trying to overpower guys and then just try to put them away with nasty stuff. Um, where when we weren't throwing that hard, uh, you know, you had to move the ball around a little bit more. You had to do some things. But, you know, I, I was out there to pitch and give me the ball, and I only get to play once every five days, so I'm, I'm going to throw as many pitches as possible. It wasn't the best – best idea now looking back on it but who's to say what would have happened if you know maybe i wouldn't have developed if i wasn't out there uh getting that extra experience but you talk about the rate of tommy john now too i i seem to think and i don't have the evidence to back it all up but the idea that everybody seems to be trying to throw every pitch as hard as they possibly can which is why you're not throwing 130 pitches you're, you're probably gassed after about 75 or 80 that seems to that seems to have been what's progressed from the time that you broke into now too. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And, you know, when, with the, so many guys in the, the middle to the back end of the bullpens too, with the velocity that they have when they come in now too, it, it makes it less of an importance to, to go through that lineup that third or fourth time, because you got another guy coming in who, uh, who's going to be bringing it, you know, in the high nineties and maybe with a little funk to him with his delivery or, or a, a wipeout slider type pitch. So, you know, I think that the reliance on the bullpen has become much greater. Uh, and a lot of that is because the just the stuff that the guys are bringing out there on a nightly basis is so much different than it was, you know, with, when the mid-relievers, uh, when I was playing, um, they didn't quite have the, the electric stuff that, that you see nowadays throughout the whole, the whole bullpen from the, the first guy to the, to the last guy, the closer. What do you remember about your debut? Um, you know, I, I know there was a lot of anticipation about it because, as you mentioned, the Mets have been struggling and there was a glimmer of hope with these guys that were coming up and maybe reminding them of, you know, Seaver, Kuzman, and Ryan and a lot of hype around your minor league starts. Uh, I remember we carried one of Jason Isringhausen's minor league starts, or I think the minor league all-star game, on the radio um, that same year. 
Uh, but you come up, I think it's a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon at Shea. And that first inning, you know, you, I think you walked in a run. It might have t- seemed like it t- took forever. What do you remember about that day? It did. Um, I remember quite a few things. Obviously, they've given up the five runs in the first inning. But uh, funny story about that is there was two balls hitting the gap, one in right center, one in left center. And both balls um, could have been caught, might have been caught. But um, <laughs> Bugsy, uh, Brett Butler was playing center field. And uh, I didn't see him for it had to be well over 15 years. And I, I ran into him in St. Lucie and this now this is years ago now, but um, the first thing he said to, to, to me was, man, I feel, I still feel bad about not catching those balls in the first inning. <laughs> so um, obviously things could have been different. I was nervous as hell. You know, I was, my knees were knocking and this is something that I had been anticipating my whole life, which was, uh, you know, I only tried to do one thing in my life up to that period. And that was become a major league baseball player. So uh it was a very special moment, um, and then to give up five runs in the – I remember my first pitch to, the, to, to Todd Hunley uh, cut about three feet and went to the backstop. So that was my first pitch in the major <laughs> I think It was kind of like, a, kinda like a, a, a Fauci pitch, but not quite as <laughs> – But um, you know what? I honestly – I left out – and I remember saying after the game, I left out of that game feeling like a victory even though it was a loss – Simply because to be able to give up five runs in the first inning and then still to be able to uh, walk off the mound after getting your last out as opposed to somebody coming and taking the ball from you. I wore that as a badge of, cur- uh, you know, badge of honor. And even though I didn't win the game and it took me a couple of more starts before I finally did get my first win, I felt like I had accomplished something there. And I, I, I always remember walking out. <clears throat> I want to say it was the fourth or fifth inning and the theme song from Friends was playing. <laughs> with walking out to pitch to warm, throw my warm-up pitches, and I found myself singing the song, and that's when I kind of felt like, all right, I'm here. This is just a baseball game, and we can go on from here. So I definitely remember that day, uh, obviously, for the pitches thrown, the five the, the five runs in the first inning, and uh, then just finally uh, realizing my dream. I grew up a Mets fan, so to walk out in, in the big blue stadium and and, uh, and just to be part of it all was uh, – and it was, it was the day before Father's Day, so I'll always remember that as well um, – Special, uh, you know, special, special. You don't, you don't get those. Those are once in a lifetime moments. Your next start, I had to look this one up because I had forgotten. I mean, that's fourteen that hits, too. right? Yeah. And fourteen hits. Nobody yeah. does that anymore. I remember uh, being on the plane. We were flying from from New York to to Miami. I want to say it was because I pitched. That's when I finally got my first win. It was the third start, uh, and Jay Horowitz coming to me on the plane and trying to tell me don't feel so bad because there was a pretty good pitcher that gave up more than 14 hits. And that was Tom Seaver. So <laughs> while I didn't quite set the record that day, I, I was, I was vying for it. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it, it seems like it's a pretty rough indoctrination, especially when, as you know, and I'm sure you're probably, it's not, it, it wasn't the same with social media, but I, you were probably pretty aware of what your status was as a prospect in the organization and what kind of hopes the team was putting around, not just you, but, the the group that you were coming up with there was some there, there was a lot of there were a lot of people relying on you and to have a couple of clunkers out of the gate i know you <laughs> felt pretty good about the first one but i mean that had to was it eating at your confidence at all or were you were just kind of knowing that it was just your first two starts well you know i mean i came up uh in the time watching like the braves guys when they were when they were turning into the hall of famers that they were. And I remember their, their, if you look at their records, their first yeah. few years in the major leagues, um, they weren't great. 
you know, they had way upside down records. And it was kind of one of those things where that was kind of to be expected in a way a little bit when, mm -hmm. um, I mean, obviously there's guys like Dwight Gooden that did it a little bit differently, but it was kind of talked about a little bit to where don't expect to come up here and, and right away just to start winning ball games and um, doing the same things that you did in the, in the, <clears throat> in the minor leagues. But uh, obviously uh, when you give up as many runs as and as many hits as I did my first, uh, my first two starts, it, it does wear on you a little bit, but I, I do remember Brett Saberhagen telling me right before my third start, Hey, don't be afraid to do something uh, down in Miami. And um, <laughs> we, me and Don Franco ended up throwing a combined shutout and I got to, uh, strikeout um you know guys that i grew up watching hall of famer like andre dawson and, and you know terry pendleton and, and doing and it's crazy because i have watched this a couple of years ago i did something with newsday and my son me and my oldest son sat and watched uh that game actually a, a recording of that game and i told my son that i strictly went on my scouting report from watching guys like pendleton and um and the hawk watching those guys growing up and using what I saw was able to get them out when I was growing up. I use that exact same stuff in the game and for it to actually work. So it was kind of one of those things then like, all right, a couple of bad starts, but now I'm starting to get into the groove of this a little bit. And as it turns out, you know, I, I think I even set a record for most consecutive starts of seven innings or in a, in a row to start his career. I know yeah. it's something like that. Oh, some, something, something crazy like that too. Now it's not just you. And I mean, you're always lumped in with, Jason Isringhausen, Paul Wilson, the innings numbers for them really stand out to me too. Same year that you were in double A, Jason Isringhausen is throwing 193 innings. He's only a year older. He's 21, eight complete games. The next year when you hit 218 innings and reach the majors, Isringhausen reaches the majors, throws a total of 221 innings. And that same year, Paul Wilson's knocking on the door. He's a college pitcher, so a little bit different, but he threw 186 innings. I mean, I just can't wrap my head around those numbers anymore. And I, and I was there in that era with you, knowing what it was, but it just seems to me, Pulse, it's, we're so far removed from that that those numbers don't even seem like it's from a different time. It just seems like it's not even possible to do. Right. I think if you were to say that to some of the younger uh, front office guys that are involved in baseball now, you would blow their minds that that, 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 that ever even happened. You know, I'm, and I always go back to this as well because I've, you know, I, I look at those kinds of numbers trying to rationalize and come up with what it, what it all really went down. And I look back at and I hear that Nolan Ryan didn't throw 200 innings for the first time until he was 25 years old. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know if it was they didn't know any better, we didn't know any better, or if it was just, you know, I, I in a way, and so this sounds silly, but I kind of thought I was like Superman. You know, I yeah. was going to be able to do things that nobody else would, could, could do. And up to a certain point, it kind of was that. So I unfortunately had to humbly find out that I'm not Superman and I'm, I'm you know, just a, a mere mortal and can get hurt and go through all kinds of, kinds of stuff um, that can tear you down and wear you down. But, um, you know, I, I wear those as bad as a badge of honor too. I did it, you know, I did it and they don't ask the kids to do that nowadays. And, um, you know, uh, I, not a lot of people could have went out there and done it, but I, I, I take it as hey man, I was out there. I was out there and I was throwing that ball and I was taking that ball and you weren't going to take it away from me. Spring of 96, you never made it to the starting gate. You had, you got hurt, Tommy John. What do you remember about, how that kind of developed, what your off season was like, and and how you kind of went into that spring before knowing that you needed Tommy John. 
Well, it started in Montreal at the end of the year with about two weeks to go. I had started against Pedro uh, up in Montreal. Well, I want to say it was the first game of a series. So the third game of the series was my bullpen day. And I remember throwing my bullpen and just feeling something's not right in my elbow. It just feels a little weak. It doesn't feel stable. So we right away got, went back to New York and got an MRI. And um, I was told to sprain the ligament. And that's when I uh, left there and talked to my agent, Craig Finnick. And he tried to, and then that's when it, he explained to me what the sprain of the ligament meant. They said, that's the ulnar collateral ligament. Because I didn't even know. I just figured, man, I sprained my ankle a million times. Right. It's a big deal. I'll be fine in a little while and I'll, I'll get back out there. But um, I was prescribed uh, rehab for eight weeks. And I lived in St. Lucie at the time. So in the wintertime, I would take, you know, a month off, three weeks off, and then get right back up to the minor league complex. And I was there six days a week. So that's what I was doing with uh, the training staff up there. And I just remember it never really, even though they said, right, you know, you'll be all right, you'll be fine. Uh, I just remember it never really feeling feeling good. It just didn't feel like it felt before. Like it still just felt like a weakness in that. And then um, we started spring training and I was able to to pitch the first couple games. And I remember there was a night game uh, being televised back up in New York. Um, and I remember warming up in the bullpen and thinking to myself, man, I've never thrown this hard before in my life. Yeah. And it was kind of like, uh, I guess an engine running really prime right before it was about to explode because, um, about the second or third inning, I remember throwing a curveball to end the inning and walking off and looking over at John Franco, who was sitting in the dugout and just giving him the, the finger across the hand across the throat saying, that's it. That I definitely, that that's it. So you know, I, and then some things happened that weren't the best where, you know, you go, you get your MRI and you get told, uh, well, there's too much inflammation and we can't really tell. And then Mark Clark gets traded for the following day. And then you're told you're going to have to have Tommy John. So I think that they kind of probably knew that it wasn't going to be good news when, uh, when the swelling did go down. And un unfortunately it wasn't. The, um, the idea of Tommy John today, uh, it's still very serious. It's still an injury that takes time to recover they haven't sped up the timetable a lot but there is a particular success rate that's that makes people feel like it's not very serious um you are still getting it at a time where it it wasn't necessarily oh i'll come back from this right i mean it was it was a pretty big deal at the time yeah i mean look i came back but i to be honest i never threw quite the way that i did prior I was close. I was close. And then obviously a lot of other things crept in after that with anxiety and depression and that because uh, not ever knowing how to deal with, with, with negatives because nothing had ever been really negative in, in my life other than my parents divorcing. Uh, and then the baseball field was always my solemn place anyway where I could go and, and be away from everything else. So, um, you know, I never threw the same. I know that you look at Izzy. Izzy was a 92, 93 guy. He had his first or second Tommy John and came back and he was 96, 98 when he went to, to Oakland. So, and I lost my curveball. My curveball was never the same. But, um, you know, I don't know how much of that had to do with some of the, the mental stuff going on as well. But I just felt like my stuff was never, never quite the same after I had Tommy John. I don't know how much you've thought about this particular element of it but when you mentioned the battles you had with depression and anxiety how much of that was do you know or think was kind of lingering inside you how much was brought on by the injury and the things that then <clears throat> kind of dominoes fell in your career um have you been able to kind of 
figure out where that all falls in relation to what happened to your career? Well, I come to come to find out later on in life to find out that, you know, how it, uh, on my mother's side that anxiety and, and depression kind of run in the family a little bit. So it's something I didn't know as a, as a younger man. Um, I think back and I always bring this up. I think back to the, fr- the free throw line in uh, in high school and remembering how I felt standing at the free throw line in high school where every, everything else kind of felt normal and just something about the free throw line. I remember feeling those same feelings that I would feel when I'd be standing on the mound once it did start to happen, which was just uncontrollable. You know, I, I couldn't control the the butterflies in the stomach or the just the apprehension and the, the anxiety. Basically, you know, that's the word to describe it is um, that's that's kind of when it started, um, but it never really festered itself and came out until after I I got injured. And a lot of it, man, I, and I went through such a great rehab, even though I wasn't throwing the same stuff i got told well you didn't play for a year so there's no way that you can come back and and come right back to the major league level because you didn't play for a year and i know i was only i was just a rookie the year before but i also grew up in a time where you don't lose your job to injury that's what i was always heard because i I was a huge sports fan growing up through for all the sports and that was one of those kinds of those things that you hear through all sports where you don't lose your job due to injury when you're healthy you got your job back well, the way I looked at it was I was one of the starting five for the New York Mets who happened to get hurt. I came back and, all right, my stuff's not as good as it was. Um, and I went through all through spring training that year of 97, fine. I wasn't throwing the same stuff, but I was fine. I was getting out. So I threw 30-something innings in spring training, which that doesn't happen anymore either. Um, and something about my first start, they sent me on a rehab assignment um, to AAA and starting in Syracuse. The, I want to say it was – might have been the first game of the year. I don't even know, but uh, something just something just wasn't right. And I was sitting on the trainer's table, getting my arm massaged out because it was freaking thirty something degrees up there that night, and um, just didn't feel right, man. Sweating, it's cold. I'm sweating profusely from my underarms and my hands, and this is something I'd never really felt before, other than maybe the first or second hitter of a game. And then once you you get those first or second hitters out of the way, and you're into the game, and it's gone, and you just you're out there competing it did turn into where it was every single pitch from before I even pitched like the night before couldn't sleep. Couldn't, you know, it's just, I don't wish it on anybody. I really don't. I wish everybody could feel it. So you could have that understanding as to what it is, but then I wish it would go away and nobody would ever have to feel that. Cause it's, it's terrible to try to perform and especially perform it, you know, at a 1% or level. Uh, it's, 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 it's impossible. There's just, there's just no way that you're going to succeed. How do you manage it today? I don't pitch. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much it, huh? That's yeah, it's gotten no. a lot easier. Yeah, I don't pitch. No, you know what? But I tell you what. Um, how do I manage it? I try to be aware of it when it is coming on, and uh, knowing that I, like I said, that I don't have to pitch. But obviously, my oldest son is a pitcher. My youngest son is is a position player. Um, one in college, one in high school, and I feel it then. I do feel it then, and I just am helpful, and I'm grateful that I don't have to be out there actually trying to, to get it done. Cause I know, I know that's what, um, that's what I would be feeling, but I took medication all the way. I pitched till I was 37. I was playing an independent baseball. I pitched till I was 37 and I used to call it strike throwing pills. I know it sounds silly, whatever, but it is what it is. I needed it. Um, and I remember even like <clears throat> up to the end of my career, I would, on the day that I would pitch, I would stay in bed till two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon. I would stay up late, wow. late, late, and then stay in bed because I didn't want to be awake 
for hours and hours and hours before because I know that I would be dwelling and feeling the anxiety. I just wanted to get up, go to the yard, get myself ready and go pitch because um, and that was all the way till I was 37 years old. So it's <laughs> it was uh, while it was my love of my life. It was also, uh, you know, be careful what you wish for. Just like we've come a long way in examining the workload, I think as you know, in society, we've come a long way in understanding things like depression and anxiety and, and different uh, mental difficulties that people go through. Do you look back on it now when you combine those two things, two things that greatly impacted your career and are looked at in a much different way now? I mean, do you, do you think that things could have turned out differently? Do you think that there's blame to go around? Do you think it's just kind of what happened? How do you look at that? I, I definitely don't look to blame at all. You know, it is what it is. I, like I said earlier, I wouldn't have had it any, any different. This is what I wanted to do. Though was something I wanted to do it. You want to be known as the guy that was going out there and taking the ball to the end of the game. Um, I think that a lot of young guys, while I'm not asking for thanks, they could, they could say thanks in a way. <laughs> uh, I look at, I say this all the time. I feel like I was way ahead of my time and not just in good things, but in bad things as well, because I had the crazy out, outward personality that they're allowing in the game nowadays where the guys, I mean, I look at Pete Alonzo's shoes. He's got a different pair of cleats on every <laughs> single night. The belts don't match. And I know I'm old now. I now I know I'm old yeah. because that stuff's starting to bother me a little bit. <laughs> but um, I was that guy, you know, I was that guy way ahead of my time uh, when it comes to that kind of stuff with the trying to be flashy and trying to have my own personality uh, outward of the team, but still within the team framework. Um, and that rubbed a lot of the older, older guys wrong. And I look back and sh shit, I wish I would have handled things a little bit differently, but, um, same thing with the mental thing. Like, you know, you, these are things that you didn't want to even bring up or at all back then. And now I don't think any team probably goes anywhere without their, uh, their sports psychologist or team psychologist with them. I don't think anybody goes anywhere without that. Yeah. And I yeah. think they put in the, in the clubhouses. Now they have the decompression chambers and all this kind of stuff that, you know, might have been uh, helpful for me uh, it, years ago. I, and I look at how quickly things changed after the three of you guys got hurt in pretty rapid succession in 1996, uh, right around there. Um, Roy Halladay in 1997 was pitching in AA and AAA at age 20. He threw 162 innings. Uh, and a couple of years after, I'm looking at guys who had strong workloads in the right. in the years after that. Mark Burley, who I think you play with for a short while, yep. um, yes. really durable for a very long time. In 2000, he was 21 years old and pitched a total of 170 innings. So, I mean, you guys don't have any awards named after you, but you you clearly left an impression on everybody to let them know this really isn't how you treat 20 and 21 year old arms. Yeah, I, I, I've always said that my elbow is pretty much a guinea pig as to, you know, how things were going to be changed in the sport. So, you look, while I didn't have a, a, the career that I would have wanted and that a lot of Mets fans would have wanted and a lot of fans of the teams that I've played would have wanted, I definitely have a mark on the game that I think is going to – I don't want to use big words like everlasting, but I, it, it definitely – my experience definitely changed the game. Absolutely. I, I remember when the Yankees were bringing up their group in the spring of 2008, Phil Hughes, Jabba Chamberlain, Ian Yeah, Kennedy. there was no Jabba rules without my elbow. Right. And 
and the conversation automatically came right to you, as it usually does when you have a group of two or three starting pitchers, uh, especially in New York. Um, but the Jabba rules obviously went into effect in 2007. They were around in 2008 again. And I remember doing like a deep dive comparison to the innings that those guys threw and that you guys threw. And I posted it online on the FAN website. And I got an email um, from, it had one line. It said, the Mets ruined my husband's career. And it, it says it came from your wife. I, don't, I never verified that it was her. I don't. I, I, if she did, but I'm not saying she didn't. I'm not aware. <laughs> I, I never verified it was her or not. But, I, but that's always stuck in my head because you guys did have to go through and lose something. You had to lose something in order for other people to gain something. Yeah, it was... Um... You know, I, that's why I say it. it's. I have an indelible mark on the game for sure, whether it be a positive, a negative, or whatever. It is a mark left by what what I went through and what you know Izzy and and, and Paul went through. Obviously, Izzy went on shit. He saved yeah. over three hundred games in the major leagues. Had a great career, um, but I was the first guy. I was the first guy to come up there and you know to wear that badge. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't begrudge anybody. You know, and I'd love to. I was I was lucky enough to go to Mets fantasy camp this past year hmm. uh, for the first time and and put the uniform on again and um, I've still you know I'm a Met I'm a Met till the day I die the way I look at it and uh, I'm, I'm a Mets fan till the day I die as well too. Your oldest son Liam pitches at Stony Brook is that correct? No, he's at Queens College now. Queens he College, okay, yeah. uh, but he's a pitcher. Yes. Uh, what kind of care do you? hope he gets or what kind of advice do you pass on to him or the people that are coaching him? Well, obviously, um, throughout his, uh, his younger career and his high school career, he, uh, we, we, we made, I made sure that, uh, he wasn't overused, you know, and I think that for the most part, um, the coaches that he was involved with in his, his high school coach was, um, a former professional as well. He played very little, played a year or two in a ball, Dennis Donovan, um, he had an understanding as well. And then they implemented the 105 pitch rule, uh, when my son got into high school. So they're not allowed to throw more than 105 pitches. I mean, I remember being an American Legion ball when I was in high school and throwing, and we played nine inning games, not seven inning games and throwing 140 pitches once a week, you know, on the weekends. Yeah. So, um, you know, you hope that that's the thing about when, once you send your kid to college, they, College coaches don't want to have anything to do with the parents for the most part. <clears throat> mm-hmm. But um, fortunately, the guy, the coach Reardon at uh, Queens is a former left-handed pitcher as well. So, um, and the way that they're looking at it for Liam is to be a weekend pitcher. And on the weekend is where they play their, their double header game. So that would mean it would be two sevens as opposed to uh, mm-hmm. uh, a nine inning game, like a midweek game. So, you know, you hope for the best. He's been looked after. Um you know, he threw today uh, to live hitters, to hitters indoors, actually. And, um, you know, we just – I try to let him understand what I went through and how I was treated and how I treated myself when it came to those kinds of things. And just to – look, is he going to play in the professional baseball? Who knows? He doesn't have the velocity right now, especially with the way the game is. But um, he's definitely going to be pitching for the next three years at least. So, uh, knock on wood, hopefully he remains healthy. He did have a little bit of a tenderness in his elbow um, a year or so ago, but that seems to have subsided. And um, we've just been generally not, I don't want to say super cautious, 
but cautious enough to know that we're, look, we're not going to go out and throw 130 pitches. I, I don't care what the situation is. And you've been doing over the years, you've done some coaching or lessons locally yep. in Long Island, right? Yeah. What, what do you tell the kids? What do you tell the parents? Um, I tell them, it, I mean, obviously it, this is kind of one of those things we can start with something simple as like when to start throwing the breaking ball. I, I actually believe in starting to throw the breaking ball at 11 or 12 years old, teaching them how to do it. Then I tell them it's up to you as the parent, you as the player, and then to have the discussion with your coach, because at the travel ball level and that the coaches are usually calling the game for the most part to let them know that we're not going to, we're allowed to throw five of these today. We're allowed to throw four of these today. And then, because what I've seen with the younger guys that turn 13, 14, going into 15, and that's when they say, all right, let's, I want to start learning a breaking ball. Man, they have the hardest time learning how to do it. So it's kind of one of those things where they, they say, you know, the breaking ball is bad for the elbow, but I feel like you got to learn how to do it. You got to learn how to throw on the side of the baseball a little bit as opposed to on top and behind the baseball. Uh, to learn how to do it, because if you get to that age where you've been throwing, you've been started pitching at seven or eight years old, and you pitch till you're 13 or 14, you're not going to have that breaking ball. And everybody always says, well, we want to save his arm. But then my response to that, Neil Heaton, who I work with up uh, uh, at 365 Athletics in Billport, we say the same thing. You're saving it for what? Because if you don't have a breaking ball, chances are you're going to get beat around. So I like to try to tell the people you need to learn it early, but then we're going to keep a leash on it as opposed to when I learned it early and then it became, all right, two strikes. We're throwing a curveball in there. We're going to make them swing and miss and make them look silly. Um, you know, I tell everybody, be wary of your coach, you know, be willing to step up because there is a team. There's so many teams out there. There's so many travel ball organizations out there. You can find one. And if you're not happy there, you can find another one. If you feel like the coach is, abusing your son or using your son too much, but I just feel like you got to take, you got to take it by control and say, uh, we're not going to do certain things, but you also have to be out there enough to be able to develop and learn how to pitch your way through, um, through some tough situations, get out of jams because those, as, if you're going to continue to, to move forward, you're going to have to be able to pitch in tough situations as well, but hopefully not in the seventh inning, uh, after you've already thrown 85 pitches, that's when we're going to have you with the bases loaded and we need to get this out. <clears throat> you know, you touch on something, Pulse, that I, I I don't know how you teach it today, but if you're pitching in a big league game and let's just let's just say you're you're probably on this rough count of 90 to 100, right? Well, if you're in the fifth or sixth inning of a game, you've got two men on and it's a one-run ball game, the most important pitches you throw are going to be the the next five, the next 10, which would be your last five, your last 10. And to try to figure out how to dig deep and get there, if you're not allowed to do it leading up to it, how do you learn how to, how to do it? I agree a hundred percent. That's where there's that fine line between getting the experience to get yourself out of jams or to get yourself, get that out when you need to get that out. And knowing that, oh, you know what, I can cave in here and somebody else will come in and, and clean up my mess, hopefully. And then if it doesn't work out, I can say, well, they didn't do their job. You know, and that's that's kind of where things were different in my day where I'm not I don't want somebody to come in and try to clean up my mess because I don't want those runs coming in because that goes on my mess anyway. <laughs> so, uh, and I remember in 1999, I believe it was I had 20 something earn, uh, inherited runners and every single one of them came around. And um <laughs> That's that's an ERA killer, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, 
but no, I agree. You know, it's and that's the the problem in this day and age with the showcase uh, mentality for a lot of the the younger players coming up is go out there and light up the gun real quick and have some big school chase you or a pro team chase you, but you've really never been through the battles uh, and what it's like to to grind it out. You know, so it's if you're gonna play on a team where all right, you're going to throw two innings, two or three innings, and then he's going to throw two or three innings. And then you don't ever really get in that situation of trying to pitch yourself for, like you said, those next five pitches are going to be the make or break of this ball game. And to learn how to be that guy that can make those five pitches to get, to get the team that out or get the team back into the dugout or to hold that lead or to hold the game where it's at. You never, you don't learn how to do that, you, you know, and that's, that's obviously very important. One of the stories that comes out every, you know, a couple of times every year is about the number of high school kids that are getting Tommy John because of how they're used or or even requesting it, wanting it, because they have this belief that it's going to make them better. They're going to come out throwing harder and they get it behind them and they don't have to worry about it anymore. Have you dealt with any of those uh, types of things as you see or work with uh, young kids out in Long Island? No, I haven't ran into anybody that's wanted to have Tommy John. I have worked with two kids that have had Tommy John that were in high school. And um, I guess they have a, n- a new procedure as well, which isn't the full replacement now, but they're actually sewing in some form of a silicone sinews to to tie it together again as well. I'm, I'm sure that's for, for ligaments that aren't completely ruptured. Um, I've been around kids that have had the injections mm-hmm. due to uh, the plasma injections due to, um, to uh, a sprain of, of the UCL. Um, I would never recommend anybody to say, how hey, I want to go have Tommy John. You know, I would never say if your arm's fine, let's, let's leave it. I would say that if you're a guy that's battling for two or three years and you've had elbow issues and it is the ligament, I would say that maybe, you know, maybe you do think about having it, but I would never say, you know what, let's do it just to get it out of the way. I mean, you look at the guy Fairbanks who was uh, pitching in a world series this year. He's had it three times. Yeah. So and granted, his arm action is crazy, and I don't know how he can throw the ball 100 miles an hour like that, but obviously it's, it's, it's also detrimental to the health of his arm, as he's had uh, Tommy John three times. But um, it, it just seems like if you throw in the way that they teach the velocity now, and, they, and that's, we didn't force our velocity yeah. when we were back then. We didn't try to look to try to throw makes gains it's just that you threw hard or you didn't throw hard and now that doesn't mean we weren't out there trying to whip it in there as hard as we could because i was i was you know i was a max effort type of guy i was trying to throw it as hard as i could and i still to my last day considered myself a power pitcher even though it didn't come out as fast i threw it as hard as i threw with all the power i had (laughs) well you know where i feel like i watched jamie moyer at the end of his career and he never looked like he was ever trying to throw anything hard so the but but when you you mentioned Fairbanks, and it reminds me of you know this year's World Series. When you see it go to the extreme, the Blake Snell comes out of a game after seventy three pitches, and not just a game in May or June. This is a World Series. Right. Um, you know, do you do you think that the that what happens in the game now because it started twenty five years ago with what happened to you? Do you think it's gone too far, or do you kind of shake your head, understanding, knowing what they're trying to solve? I just think that you can't, and what do I know? I'm just some guy. I'm not even involved anymore. But I don't think you can win a World Series using the same bullpen guys 
night in and night out throughout a playoff, especially with the added rounds of playoff. You just can't do it. You can't because the hitters are going to see the guy too many times. And you, there's only so many times you can get that thing cranked up in a one-run ball game. And I need to get this freaking out. I have to get this out. And I'm not going to be able to get it out by pitching like Greg Maddox. I'm going to have to get him out by overpowering this guy. And I just don't see how – I don't see how it works. So I, I think that it, and it comes back down to – and two years ago proved it – starting pitching. This year, again, it, in a way, starting pitching. Your starters are going to have to get you deeper into the ballgame because we can't use these guys every single night because they're going to be out of gas come game four, game five, game six of the World Series. They're going to be out of gas. And, and your best guy is going to end up giving up runs or giving up a lead when you know that he's the best guy out there. He just doesn't have his best stuff anymore. He's, he's cashed. He's done. So I got two more things for you. Uh, one, is there any form that you still keep in touch with Izzy and Wilson? Uh, do you, do you, is there a group text with you guys? Do you have framed Generation K newspaper clippings and posters in your house? No. Any of that? I, I don't. I don't. I do not. Um, I have the stuff. I don't have it anywhere out and about. Um, I do have a baseball card of myself on that I just recently put on uh, on my refrigerator, and that's basically <laughs> the only thing. And then uh, one more thing. This goes back to I, I have not spoken to Wilson in many, many years. Me and Izzy, uh, not this summer, the summer before, because this summer was canceled pretty much. Um, we were actually inducted into uh, – Izzy had a hell of a week because he got two two Hall of Fames. One was the uh, the Binghamton their baseball shrine, and the other one was the Cardinals Hall of Fame. So he had a big week. I only had a half of a big week when um, I got put into the Binghamton uh, Hall their baseball shrine. That's what they call it up That's there. That's great. Um, so we got to see each other again, and we sh- we sh- we talked through text here and there. Um, but uh, I hadn't seen him in a while. I hadn't seen him since 2011 until um, last year, and then I'm hoping when we get fantasy camp back going again, I'd like to try to get Izzy come to come down to fantasy camp as well, because, you know, I, it's funny. There was 120 campers down there and I felt like, and I've always felt like I had, a, I've received pretty well by, by Mets fans. Mm-hmm. There was only a few guys that kind of felt like they would want to walk the other direction, still disgruntled <laughs> generation. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I still talk to Izzy here and there. Wilson, I haven't spoke to him in, in years and years. He's kind of wanted to stick to himself for the most part. Um, I lied. There's, there's one more thing. Do you cringe when you hear, when you hear generation K, when you just hear people throw that out there and bring it up? No, man, I'm proud of it. Yeah. I'm proud of it. I'm not, uh, you know, it's not what I wanted it to be. It's not what anybody wanted it to be, but I lived it and I was part of it and you can't take that away from me, you know, to say you're a one percenter, not a lot of people can say that. So take that as that's pride. Um, I know how, and now that I've gone through and I've, I've coached younger kids and I've been in the travel ball scene and I see how many people play baseball to know that you even put that baseball uniform on in the major leagues for one day, that says something because I see how many kids play and how many kids want to live that dream. So I wear it as a badge. That's a badge of honor, man. I was whatever. You can say whatever you want about it. That's fine. I lived it. I was out there and I did it. You may have just answered my last question. I wanted to simply just ask you, what did you think was your highlight? What makes you smile when you think about your career? <laughs> you know, there's not one thing. There's really not one thing. I mean, honestly, we talked about the first start, how I gave up seven runs, but I can look back and smile on that. Because yeah. like I said, I walked off the mound getting the third out in the seventh inning. I walked off the mound. I didn't have Dallas come and take the ball from me. Yeah. Um, 
being able to throw a no hitter in the in the double uh, A double A championship series. You know, first time that had been done since the fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, winning a championship in um, in the in Latin America and Puerto Rico, going to the Caribbean World Series for three years. Um, just numerous things, man. I, I don't. I, I can't say one thing. I can name a lot of lows as well. You know, being in Japan and pitching terrible against the Yokohama Giants uh, when we went to go the the 2000 series against the Cubs and the Mets over there and feeling like the walls are closing in on me. You know, I, there's so many, so many stories. I can't think of just one. My thanks to Bill Pulsifer. He and his Generation K brothers combined to pitch in almost 1,600 professional games. And Isringhausen had the most successful career, notching 300 career saves and making two all-star teams. Their combined records as pitchers for the Mets, however, was just 31 and 45. If you're new here, please check out the 30 with Murdy archive at radio.com and Apple Podcasts. A lot of fun conversations in 2020, including Rays owners Stu Sternberg, Peter King, Joe Torrey, Bobby Richardson, and many more. Please make sure to subscribe and review and all that jazz. Please stay safe and stay well. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.